Hi there, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to the LSE. Make yourselves um, seated. <laughs> Turn off your mobiles. Um, welcome tonight to our um, special event uh, looking at digital natives. It's uh, a special event because it's also um, part of our Silverstone Scholarship, which uh, was awarded in honour of uh, the late Professor Roger Silverstone uh, of the Media and uh, Communications Department. And it was uh, Roger's idea to set up POLIS, uh, and I'm the first director of POLIS, which is the uh, journalism think tank that's based within the Media and Communications Department here at the LSE. Um, we cover a whole range of uh, issues at, the, at POLIS, from uh, humanitarian communication right across to celebrity journalism, but everything we, we do seeks to connect the research and teaching that happens uh, within my department here uh, with the wider community of media practitioners and the public. Uh, so it's good to see a diversity of people uh, in the audience tonight. This event is very much a precursor uh, to what we hope will be a series of seminars and new research projects in 2010, which will be looking at digital communications, e-democracy, and so on. So if you're interested in this field, stay in touch, and by all means, get in touch with me uh, to see if you want to get involved. Um, now, tonight's... Uh, subject, if you like, is, is um, young people and the internet. And at this point, traditionally with this kind of new media event, I should then regale you with uh, anecdotes about my teenage kids and about how extraordinarily proficient they are online. Uh, and indeed, I do have two teenage sons. And indeed, last night, um, one of them said, yeah, I, amazing, I've reconnected with uh, this mate I used to have at primary school who um, went, left the country with his parents and went to Dubai and Nigeria and has now ended up in uh, Newham. Um, and it took Facebook to bring them back together again. But generally speaking, um, I, the, my, my kids are slightly odd, I think. At least they don't quite conform to the myth in the sense that one of them, uh, and bear in mind their father is somebody who has spent the last three years renouncing his traditional... Uh, media career in favour of the joys of the internet and new media but uh, my eldest son keeps bringing a newspaper into the house um, and the youngest one is, is, is a regular reader of uh, New Musical Express in its paper form um, so I think we're going to get a sense tonight of how uh, surprising how different and how difficult uh, the relationship can be between young people and so-called new media. Now tonight we've got four people who know huge amount about this and we've got a fifth person, Ranjana Das who also knows a huge amount about it and has got some very fresh research she is the Silverstone Scholar this year and she's going to be presenting a flavour at least of some of the work that she's been doing so we've got five different perspectives on this and as they are the experts uh, I'm going to hand over straight away to our first speaker tonight who is my colleague, Professor Sonia Livingston, head of the Media and Communications Department. And what we're going to do is each um, uh, academic is going to present for about 15 minutes. We're going to go right through that. So you're going to get a, uh, at least an hour of um, brain food. And then we're going to open it up to dialogue with yourselves. So first of all, Professor Livingston.
Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here this evening and to um, uh, introduce this topic of uh, digital natives. Um, I was told 10 minutes, so um, uh, I might be less than the 15, but then I can maybe answer more questions. Who knows? So being um, perhaps a rather old-fashioned academic, I thought I'd begin with a Hegelian argument structure. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Actually, to check that I'd got my Hegel right, I looked it up on Wikipedia, which told me that Hegel never said this, and so as a digital immigrant, I stood uh, corrected by a digital natives tool. Never mind. Thesis. Young people think differently from their parents because they were born into a, diff into a digital world. This much-hyped claim is what we're asked here today to reflect upon. As Mark Prensky put it, quote, digital natives are used to receiving information really fast. They like to parallel process and multitask. They prefer their graphics before their text rather than the opposite. They prefer random access like hypertext. They function best when networked. They thrive on instant gratification and frequent rewards. They prefer games to serious work. And most important, those struggling and accented digital immigrants, today's teachers, he says, have to learn to communicate in the language and style of their students. Antithesis. Young people do not think so very differently after all. It's all hype. Children are no more or less sociable, distractible, haphazard or creative in their learning than they have ever been. Certainly I've read no serious scientific research that shows children's brains are, being, are changing or being rewired by hours in front of the computer, as Prensky suggests. Let me quote from Professor Usha Goswami, a psychologist at Cambridge University. She says, It is now recognised that children think and reason in the same ways as adults from early in childhood. Children are less efficient reasoners than adults because they're more easily misled in their logic by interfering variables such as contextual variables and because they're worse at inhibiting irrelevant information. The major developmental change during the primary years is the development of self-regulatory skills. Cognitive development is experience dependent and older children have had more experiences than younger children. Synthesis. The arguments so far are too polarised. The dichotomies are too simple. So some things are changing in young people's styles of learning and acting, but that doesn't mean they are fundamentally transformed. Rather, it seems the ways in which knowledge is represented and the ways in which pupils prefer to learn are being reshaped by the affordances of the technologies they engage with and by the pedagogic, commercial and peer cultures that contextualize their daily activities. Such changes, however, are occurring on a longer time scale and far more variably and unevenly than any claims of a wholesale transformation within the past decade might suggest. So, to amplify synthesis and to set to one side, I hope, thesis and antithesis, I thought I'd make three further observations. First, and here, um, drawing on my um, work uh, recently published in a book, Children and the Internet, an appropriate title for today, um, and having sat with children watching what they do on the computer, listening to them talk about the internet, listening to them show me their various gadgets in their bedrooms and so forth, it seems to me that there are lots of things that children and young people can do online and also lots of things they struggle with. 
In fact, I suggest that anyone who sat down with children in front of a computer or in front of the internet knows the ambiguities involved in characterising their competences. We hear the voice of the digital native. Here's a group of 14-year-olds telling me, we know the computer, we're the generation of computers. I hear a sceptical voice. There's a 17-year-old girl who says, every time I try to look for something, I can never find it. It keeps coming up with things that are completely irrelevant. A load of old rubbish, really. And an ambivalent voice. I think in comparison to my parents and loads of the older generation, I know, I do know more. But I think there are a lot of people that know a lot more than me. A lot of my friends know a lot, and I learn from them. That was a 17-year-old girl. Watching children click the links quickly and juggle the multiple windows doesn't necessarily confirm they're engaging with online resources wisely or even as they themselves may have hoped. We must not be beguiled by their confidence. Moreover, some of the variation in what young people do and don't know or can and can't do is partly a matter of socioeconomic inequalities. For poorer children, digital disadvantage may compound social disadvantage. So for some, the internet is a rich, engaging and stimulating resource. For others, it remains a sporadic and rather narrowly used one. That was my first observation. Second, one crucial reason why young people also struggle with some of the affordances of the digital world is that it is often opaque, hard to read, illegible. Just as in the world of print, so too in the digital world, Literate readers require legible texts. Think of the way computers talk to us, of illegal commands and fatal errors and decisions to abort while you lose all your recent work. Also, more subtly, consider the ways in which online sites and services are designed, either to enable or impede the user's ability to locate them, navigate them, ascertain their reliability, judge their authorship, contribute to them, and of course, learn from them. An astonishing number of sites, it seems to me, enable a degree of navigating, downloading, and even uploading without their young users gaining the faintest idea of who produced the site or why, where the information came from, and what happens to anything that they may contribute to it. Ofcom's latest report on children's media literacy, published last month, found that for 12 to 15-year-olds in the, in the UK, two in three make some kind of reliability check when visiting a new website. Checks like, do other people recommend the site? Is it up to date? Has it a trust mark? Can you confirm the information across sites? And this is no more than checked reliability two years ago. And crucially, a large minority for whom the internet has become the first port of call for information and homework make few, if any, checks. Second finding from Ofcom, though most use search engines, children and young people are not sure how the results are selected. Some think it's a matter of usefulness or relevance, others a matter of truthfulness, others a matter of paying to be highly ranked. Working class children appear to be more confused about this than middle class children, Ofcom reports. I nearly put these two points up earlier, up with the argument that children don't know quite as much um, as they may appear to know. But I think these two points better illustrate my concern about the legibility of websites. For there's little on the web that guides users, young or old, about how to determine reliability or how to choose among search results. 
they and we figure this out for themselves, and the result is both uneven and unequal. And this brings me to my last point. Why am I being so downbeat? Isn't there plenty of evidence of the many and wonderful things that young people are doing online, learning, creating, participating, expressing themselves and more? Yes, of course there is. Perhaps my colleagues now will uh, elaborate. But my title, um, to which I'm responding and which you can't see, <laughs> is Enabling Media Literacy for Digital Natives, a Contradiction in Terms. So what I'm trying to do is to flag what young people don't know and what they don't do online in order to encourage the provision of more resources of all kinds. Pedagogic, support for the development of media and information literacy, support for the better and more legible design of websites. The notion of digital natives, I suggest, is promoted by two constituencies. The first is educationalists, and they have much work to do. And the second is those who market to youth and who might wish that if they are digitally native, they perhaps have less work to do or different work. In short, if we celebrate young people's digital literacy too much, providing more resources for them becomes a lower priority. And if, on the other hand, we recognise how their existing knowledge and resources may limit their opportunities, the task for us ahead becomes clearer. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sonia. Uh, we're actually going to do a little sort of disappearing trick now because David Buckingham from the Institute of Education is going to speak next at the uh, Help Yourself to, with, some, with some slides. So I think it makes sense for us to get out of the line of sight. But it's David Buckingham now from the Institute of Education. Yes. Oh, we have, we have a what? We have a Ooh, in stereo. We'll stick it out the way. Okay. okay, I'm not sure there's, there's any significance in, in Sonia being over there and me being over here, but I, I would say that. Um, in terms of thesis and antithesis, what I'm going to give you is a quick burst of antithesis um, and, and a rather sort of bad-tempered polemic, um, really for the sake of argument. Um, and I'm going to focus, as the title suggests, on the, the educational or the learning dimension of all of this. Um, what's wrong with digital natives? I have, to, I have to say, when I hear this term digital natives, I reach for my gun. Um, I think there's a, been a well-rehearsed argument about this. Many people have been over the points that I'm about to make. Um, I think there is quite a body of research that tells us that many so-called digital natives or members of the digital generation are no more intensive users of digital media than many so-called digital immigrants. They are by no means as technologically fixated or as technologically proficient as is often assumed. They don't necessarily have the skills, the competency, the natural fluency that they're assumed to possess. So I think there is a tendency in this discussion to essentialise um, generations and differences between generations and to make vast generalisations about them. Um, I think there's also a tendency here to exoticise young people. I think there's a sentimentality about children and youth mixed up with a kind of fear, really, about what might be going on in this younger generation. 
Um, so there's an exoticizing of young people, but also, strangely, a belittling of young people in assuming that young people automatically, spontaneously know everything they need to know about technology, rather than having to learn about technology and make an effort to learn about technology. I think there's a sense in which young people are actually being belittled in this discussion as well. Um, I think, as I say, this discussion over, overstates generational differences, understates the diversity, um, not least the age differences within generations, and actually how do we draw the lines between generations anyway, underestimates um, the inequalities within generations, um, and I think those things are critical at a policy level. And lastly, I would say the whole thing is tied up with a kind of techno-determinism. It's tied up with the idea that technology in and of itself produces generational change. I would accept that growing up with a technology may imply a different orientation towards it than coming to it later in life, but I think we could ask the question about how lasting that kind of difference is. Okay, I'm going to talk a bit more um, closely about the learning issue here. Mark Prensky, who, whom Sonia mentioned, um, if you look at Mark Prensky's latest book, um, Don't Bother Me, Mom, I'm Learning. Um, sorry. <laughs> Sense of how I feel about it implied, implied, implied in how I, I read that, sorry. Um, I mean, what the book is, is Mark Prensky is a, is a games designer, basically. Um, and what you get in this book is a vindication of computer games as a learning medium. Now, what that entails is, on the one hand, an undermining of all the arguments about the harmful effects of games, while at the same time buying into arguments about the positive consequence, uh, cons consequences of gaming. So games are seen to have, while all this stuff about violence and whatever is nonsense, on the other hand, games are seen to have all sorts of positive educational benefits. They develop cognitive skill, kids learn all sorts of, of important areas of content. Um, from the point of view of, of games studies, what you get is a certain justification of games in terms of, of what um, Brian Sutton Smith in his, his work on play calls uh, a rhetoric of play as progress. That play is justified um, in terms of its educational value. All the dangerously antisocial aspects of play, play is what Brian Sutton Smith calls phantasmagoria, this is all kind of swept to one side. What we have is a certain kind of vindication of gameplay, which is I think very partial. Um, so a developmental rhetoric about play. Also in this, there's, a, there's an assumption that learning transfers. So what we learn from playing computer games somehow transfers um, to what goes on in real life. So we learn hand-eye coordination, we learn problem solving, and somehow this makes us better problem solvers in real life. I think a, a very dubious argument. Um, also in this, a sense of learning as somehow spontaneous. Um, and that goes along with a rhetoric in this argument, a, a dismissal of schooling, a dismissal of formal education, a valorising of informal learning. And the distinctions between informal and formal, I think, often very loosely um, and, and vaguely defined here. But a dismissal of, of formal learning in schools. And so this argument, again, that Sonia cited, you know, digital natives want to learn in different ways. They want more interactive, game-like, discovery-based, multitasking forms of learning, and not all that boring stuff that they get in school. 
Um, so I, I think it's important to say where this argument is, is coming from. And I would say that, again, the research evidence would be that, you know, that, you know, is there really a generational difference here? And is that difference produced by technology? I would say the evidence for that is very, very limited. Um, okay, so if it's all rubbish, as I'm saying, you know, why are people making this argument? What functions does this discourse, this rhetoric serve in terms of, of debates, particularly around educational policy? And I would say it is partly driven by a kind of sales pitch. Um, it's driven by commercial companies selling technology into schools um, and also government policy looking for a, a technological quick fix to what it perceives to be um, the problems of education. And if you track this discourse, as I have done, through things like uh, the National Grid for Learning, um, the kind of stuff that comes out of Vector, the Harnessing Technology Strategy, most recently the Rose Review, what you actually find is, is partly the digital native, it's actually rather more ambivalent than that. Um, because what you have is this rhetoric of young people as spontaneously technologically competent on the one hand, but on the other hand we mustn't forget that of course they lack fundamental skills. And this is very much also a skills agenda, a set of, of sort of competencies that young people are seen to, to need. And that is all then tied up in, in a kind of policy mush. You know, the digital native goes in with personalization, informal learning, learning styles, multiple intelligences, etc. A series of concepts which, once you start to, to look at them and probe them a little bit, are, are really very ill-defined and really quite problematic. Um, for companies, this is a valuable means of generating profit. For governments, I think it's a, it offers the promise of a technological fix. You know, if young people are disaffected from school, then that's something that we can solve by putting a lot of computers and whiteboards into classrooms because these things are assumed to automatically motivate young people. And I think this is characteristic of a wider tendency to take a cultural or a social problem and present it as a technical one and offer a technical or technological solution. Um, so I think also for some people advocating technology in schools. This comes to be tied up with what I would only really call a, a kind of wishful thinking about how technology will bring about a fundamental transformation of, of power in the classroom, will move us towards a more democratic um, form of education, undermine the power of the teacher, um, create a more student-centred classroom. And again, I would say the evidence for those kinds of assertions is very limited, and certainly there's quite a lot of evidence to the contrary if you look at the research that's been done about whiteboards, for example. So having attempted to kind of chuck it all out, okay, what, what value might it have? Well, actually, I, I'm not so sure about the synthesis, but I think this concept of generations and generational differences might have some traction. And one of the things that interests me, actually, is how discourse, a set of arguments about generation, are used um, both in, in public debate but also in everyday life in terms of how people define themselves. And there's a, you know, there's a, there's a body of work on this, uh, Mannheim's work on the social historical construction of generations. How are generations constructed? How do they come to define themselves? But also in everyday life, this notion of generationing, um, the idea that somehow what goes on is 
both for young people and for adults, a kind of performance of an age identity that young people are defining themselves as members of generations um, through their everyday interaction. So if you look at how that goes on in homes or in schools, in terms of how people use technology, what they say about technology, um, in terms of how the activity of using technology is produced and constructed and, and regulated. So, for example, how parents, myself included, construct their children as technology experts, um, while at the same time trying to kind of monitor and regulate what they're doing with the technology. I think there's a, an interesting process going on here, quite a complex and, and ambivalent one. Um, and this is to really embarrass um, one of my PhD students here, who's been, been looking at this in the context of Korea, Amy Kim, um, has been doing some qualitative research about this. And, we, and she's used a very interesting method of getting young people to write advice manuals for their teachers about how to use technology. And what's, what's really quite interesting is that a lot of the advice is really about the etiquette, the sort of social cultural use of technology, not so much about the actual technical aspects at all. And it's all tied up with the defining of generational difference. Um, we're also doing some work at the moment, and this I will move on and finish, um, interviewing teachers. And one of the things that we find is that you know, teachers' professions of technological competence or incompetence also entail a set of claims about their position um, in this generational order and about their professional identity. So I think some, some interesting things going on in terms of how this notion, this idea of generations, actually gets used and, and employed in everyday discourse and everyday practice. Lastly, just to say a, a little bit about some work that we've been doing um, in a, a big survey that we've done as part of a, a project around media literacy. We've been looking at, we did a, a survey around, um, well, 2,000 plus um, children and teachers across three secondary schools, four primary schools, um, still, still looking at this stuff, but I, I would say, you know, the big picture is that the similarities between the teachers and the students are much more marked than the differences. Um, there are a lot of things in terms of their media uses that they have in common, television, um, but also the internet. Games, okay, there is a difference, but quite a few teachers also play games. Social networking, quite a lot of teachers into um, social networking, um, and also lots of kids and teachers insisting on the importance of non-media activities. In a sense, the differences between the generations may be more to do with the purposes for which people use particular technologies rather than um, with the, the actual media or the technology in itself. Equally, I don't think there's any simple kind of high culture, low culture thing going on. There's no clear kind of hierarchy of taste um, going on here. So I think you know, it, it's, it would be simplistic to say, as Mark Prinsky et al. seem to be saying, that teachers and students are living in different technological or cultural worlds. Um, you know, if we look at how media or technology are used in school, um, these things are used in a variety of ways, there are a range of meanings constructed around the technology. What goes on in an ICT lesson is different from an English lesson, from a media lesson and so on. There is regulation, but there is also resistance. Bringing the technology into school is a complex, ambivalent, um, difficult thing. It doesn't have guaranteed consequences. So I think you know, uh, the idea that somehow employing the technology bridges a gap here is also... Um, a difficult one. I would say finally, you know, the answer is not ICT. 
um, which I would see in terms of a you know, compulsory school subject as a, a wasteland of meaningless busy work. Um, <laughs> media education, I would suggest, is you know, more of a potential kind of third space, a meeting ground, a space for a dialogue um, across the differences and across the similarities between teachers and students, but nevertheless still an ambivalent and a difficult one. But that is another story, and I've probably used much more than my ten minutes, but I'll stop now. So thanks very much. Thanks very much. When you said the words, um, what was it, a, a meaningless landscape of, of busyness, my whole career kind of flashed in front of me. Um, but uh, is this going to work? Yeah. Down the bottom there, Chris. Down the bottom. No, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. That's very good. You're down. <laughs> There's always got to be one moment in any evening that's dedicated to uh, new media where that goes wrong, but it hasn't. Just go to the top. Yeah, lovely. Okay. <laughs> Take a breath. It's uh, Dr. Chris Davis from Oxford University. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is going to get probably increasingly difficult to say something totally different from what you know, the very excellent uh, talks that have come before. I'm just glad I'm there. Not the course of that, Kevin. I'm going to talk about the notion of a digital natives uh, with respect to uh, a research project that I'm involved in at the moment funded by Bechter, who I, I, I very much like what David was saying about the policy mush at their research conference last week. There's a big sign saying personalisation everywhere you went. I'm not quite sure what we had to do about it, but it was just there. Uh, which I don't want to be rude about Bechter because they've actually been quite good partners in this research and been very enjoyable. What we're looking at, a project called the uh, Learner in Their Context, is looking at uh, young people, try not to constantly call them learners, we asked to, uh, between eight in primary school up to 19-year-olds in uh, university and, and their uses their, of technology in their lives and their learning away from formal education in the home and, and other places. That's our focus. And so in a way what I'm talking about is a notion of digital native, in particular as it sort of works out or doesn't work out in the home. Uh, and uh, it's not a, a notion that we've been you know, particularly working with but it's a notion that you can't actually escape from either. Uh, it's sort of uh, tenacious and it's there. It comes up when you're talking about things and, you, and then you try and dismiss it and it's been a big part I think of, of, of something we have to resolve and I find it quite hard to resolve so preparing for, for this talk tonight has been quite an interesting uh, experience. Now, I, I, in calling it riders, drivers, daggers and outsiders was probably the first and last time those particular terms will come out but uh, there, there's some use and I'll explain them as I go on but it's certainly to say that of course we don't want to talk about one sort of homogenous notion of young people, but there are many different uh, groupings. And uh, after working through uh, our, our data for last year and a half, we're about halfway through. Now, I, I feel easy in talking in terms of sort of four broad groups that we've been looking at when talking to young people in the home and uh, about their home uses. Uh, but in, in thinking about this, uh, I went back to the notion 
uh, and came across a lovely uh, version of Digital Natives just a couple of days ago on a website called HubSpot. I think you don't need to get anything more than HubSpot, it'll get you there, which uh, is an article called Do You Have Digital Natives at Your Organization? and is designed to help you spot the digital natives in your organisation and either sack them or bring them on. <laughs> not quite clear which. Uh, but what interested me was where uh, it started. I thought it was quite good. It said, uh, digital natives are a cultural subset of teens and young professionals, and the rest we know, grown up immersed in the digital world, a commonplace convenience. Uh, and then they go to explain how you spot them. Uh, they give tests and you can award points. Uh, and these are sort of three kind of areas that characterise this according to this article and according to many others. The digital native, uh, these ones can uh, navigate any kind of computer. They don't mind what computer they own because it's all out there. It's information, it's in the cloud, uh, and they, they can adapt to anything. Um, they don't like to be told what to do. They steer themselves, uh, and this draws notions, again, which David touched on, touched on, uh, that they've learned this from playing video games so they can solve any problem as it comes at them. Uh, and as multitaskers, we know they're multitaskers, um, but then actually I just have to mention coming here today in Burlington Arcade, I saw a very sort of senior gentleman having his shoes, shoes shined whilst talking on a hands-free mobile and reading the paper, and I thought that was pretty good multitasking actually. <laughs> Uh, but as multitaskers, they avoid activities that prevent them from becoming single-threaded, like talking on the phone. They don't talk on the phone, apparently, uh, because they can't do three other things at once, but if they're texting, they can. So that's the kind of notion, and the more you read it, the more absurd the picture gets, the more specific uh, and, and limited it gets. But nonetheless, uh, I realised that in looking at our own sort of findings and trying to make sense of the, of, of the different... We were seeing lots of differences in the young people we were looking at. But sometimes you say, oh, these are the digital natives there. Um, and we sort of came up with different headings, and uh, I, I'll talk about why I use these slightly absurd terms in a moment. Uh, but the key one for me was uh, the notion of the mainstream. But we're, uh, all right across the board, the young people we were looking at uh, generally shared a certain set of mainstream activities, and they're not shocking or surprising to hear what they are, these kinds of things, that nearly everybody, uh, to some extent, was either doing these or wishing they were doing these. Uh, some degree of social networking, communications, leisure activities, some degree of creative activities, not vast amounts for the most part, but, all, but nearly everybody doing a little bit, and, and some schoolwork, and that was the sort of the, 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 the teenage mainstream. Uh, and, and we sort of plotted how, as they grow older, the, the priorities change within that set of things, um, but they were still mainly the same set of things. And, and, but as they got near GCSEs and making option choices and A-level and so on, uh, the, the balance changed of how they spread, spread their time. And as they were in university and they were looking towards employment, again, those same things were deployed slightly differently. Um, Pre-teenage, there wasn't much pattern, I have to say. Uh, and, and, and so the kind of patterns we came out that we were seeing some of if we had that mainstream, then most of them were kind of riding the mainstream, having a good time, enjoying using it, uh, and were right, going along with it and getting what they wanted out of it. Some are kind of drivers, the term which I'm particularly happy with, were going in the direction they wanted. Weren't just riding it, they were making of it what they wished. They were the sort of specialists, they were using things... Uh, and sometimes really quite obscure things and not doing mainstream stuff, but there weren't many of those. And then there were the sort of the dabblers, the ambivalent ones who do much the same but don't quite want to be characterised as doing much the same. 
and finally there were the sort of outsiders, the unconnected ones. Um, we're seeing a lot more of those this year when we're looking uh, at groups like uh, special educational needs and looked after children and so on who are having, even with uh, government's home access scheme, very different experiences. Uh, a few illustrations of, of how those things sort of pan out to try and finally work my way through to seeing uh, an answer to that question at the top. Okay, we, we, we find it helpful to think in subsets, but which of those subsets fits the notion of digital native? And, and, and so to start with, we saw that top group of specialists and drivers as, as doing just that. And so, you know, just a few examples, and there aren't very many, don't panic. Uh, and obviously this, this lad here fits it very nicely. Uh, an interesting boy who, uh, because he just lived only with his dad, and his dad let him get on with whatever he wanted to do, his computer. He, he spent many, many hours every evening doing the things that we know lots of lads do. Talked very interestingly about his addiction to World of Warcraft and how his friends online helped him out of it, uh, and, and would certainly fit certain stereotypes of additional native. Uh, or in a more positive sense, perhaps, this uh, young woman who uh, was very keen on photography, and as a group, they would take photographs and upload them and put comments, and she was the one who was charged with improving the, the sort of quality of the photos. And uh, in a very sort of... Uh, you know, she, she had agency, she was the one who would do it. You know, can you put it in black and white? So I do, and it's a sort of very much part of my language. Going to the slightly older ones, a pattern here which related very nicely, I think, to some of uh, the other younger ones we'd seen. When I was 12, I started sort of music production with, um, soft, uh, with software, musical software. Um, and now this lad's at university, and you know, his computer's on all the time, he has his laptop beside him in the lab for his ideas and so on. Uh, and here I think sort of an important element, or two important elements at work. One, his home life created this. I mean, his father was a, a, an IT, uh, uh, IT systems person, uh, and he grew up in that. Uh, his future career was about this. So all of these things were being deployed towards a future career, uh, just as uh, uh, this young woman who uh, uses all those things, but Facebook and so on, to begin to create an identity for herself uh, as... Uh, a journalist online. My favourite, that slightly mystical statement is that a, a Polish student uh, who was actually you know, going to be an IT specialist and I just love this. Because yes, there's a whole story that you don't quite get but you know it's there. Which I like very much. So I mean, those sort of fitted into the kind of uh, you know, the, the stereotype of the digital native and, and for a while we were quite okay, we'll call it that for now but then the others weren't. I we were very clear about that. Uh, I'm not going to, I mean, if you show thousands and thousands of examples, well, really one's showing what we already know, that there are lots of kids out there very happily using these things, putting a lot of effort into making sure they get hold of them, that they're allowed to use them as they wish, sometimes experiencing difficulties, uh, using them you know, in a very natural way. Yeah, I recognise that books are important, but actually very happy to have control over using the internet for the research uh, he has to do for his GCSE work. Uh, same sort of re remark from this one, uh, and I was just you know, also getting on with all the teenage pleasures of the work of being a teenager. Uh, and I mean, put very few of these up because really, you know, we know the kind of things they're going to say. Uh, the sort of the more ambivalent ones, I think, are interesting. There are lots and lots of those who want to state their lack of, uh, you know, their lack of digital na nativeness in a certain way, uh, you know, and they usually began with, you know, I don't computer that much, I will, okay, if I think about it, I do, but I don't want to be seen as someone who, who 
who does. I don't want to be like a self-obsessed like computer freak. And then going right up, and I think some of the Oxford undergraduates we've spoken to this year are quite interesting as well, because they are uh, experiencing a, a greater tension between their identity as Oxford undergraduates and people who are committed to the book, and yet the fact that they had brought certain habits and pleasures of their computer use that weren't quite valued anymore. Um, so they were, they were very ambivalent, a lot of those. But this one's clearly using some quite sophisticated uses of technology as a work as a law student. Um, and then the outsiders are interesting. Obviously, there are those who simply are excluded for reasons of finance and so on, and, and also family circumstances. I thought this one was very interesting, where this boy wants to use a computer for his work, as a 14-year-old, but has to do it at a distance by phone with his father, who does the actual work on the internet, most part of the occasion, obviously, is there, but his father lives a very long way away from school. Uh, I thought that was a very unusual version. And what for me that's saying, which we certainly see lots of, but the excluded ones, for the most part, and obviously are some who self-exclude, but not that many. Most are trying to overcome their sense of exclusion. This, although, is a very interesting one I only just came across, where she's kind of excluded, it's there that she then use it. And she, it's a, well, itself. And there's a whole picture there of what the, the parental involvement and the anxieties that some of them feel uh, give rise to. Uh, and then there's one which I've used a few times, but uh, you know, that, I haven't got anything, but I would like it, and no, I'm not you know, happy without it. So, in conclusion, um, what, what, which are the ones of the digital natives? And what we're seeing with these people, uh, from my point of view, that we've seen in the homes exclusively, we aren't looking at in schools, is that, you know, that there is a lot of shared practice among them, but then those practices are the practices all of us share, so it's not what they do for the large part. Uh, and those shared practices are sort of evident regardless of their orientations towards or their opportunities for using. Those are the things they either do or aspire to do or want to do. What they're doing are largely kind of generic tools and skills. There's not a lot of highly specialised and, 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 and difficult or technical stuff. Um, and the important thing for me is that is what makes it generational, what makes me want to say, well, I think they all, it's not one group that's additional natives, they all fit a version of the idea of additional natives. There is a notion that's generational for me, and it's not a very deep one, but it's there, uh, that certainly seeing them in the home, what they want from these technologies is the freedom to do the things that they want. They've got to battle for that freedom to some extent sometimes with their parents, they want autonomy, they want autonomy for their entertainment, for their socialising, for the way they do their schoolwork, for all these things they want to gain and they see technology and they share that knowledge amongst themselves as bestowing some degree of autonomy. And, and that is something specific about young people because young people have a lot of aspiration but very little power to realise it. And it seems to me that they do view technology and they share that view and they share that knowledge of how to do it amongst themselves. Uh, as a way of giving them a little bit of extra freedom. It's one of the, one of the things that will, will bestow that. Uh, and that they learn those skills, they learn what to use, they're very limited, they, they, and all the sorts of things that Sonia was saying about the sort of their, their inability sometimes to understand and make judgments about what they're getting on the internet. Nonetheless, they will operate in quite a similar way with each other. So that what we're left with is the notion of digital natives as sort of um, a signifier, not a description. Uh, it doesn't give a lot of information about 
what they understand or what they do, but it does give some information about why they're enthusiastic and about what the energy is that could be built on uh, and not, we hope, too uh, sort of repressed. It does seem to me like a social cultural phenomenon. They're learning from each other what it means and what the values of using technology are. It doesn't mean they're going to use them particularly well, but that energy is certainly something I think that we could be building on more. Sort of like a. Uh, oh, uh, I actually did put my name in. so much cleverer. <laughs> Great. It's uh, Rebecca Willett from um, Centre for Study of Children, also at the Institute of Education. Thank you, Rebecca. Sorry, please. Mm. Okay, well, I'm happy to go forth because it um, gives me an excuse to uh, show pictures. To kind of, um, you know, as the digital generation, or the, uh, the, um, digital natives that you are, I'm sure you respond to visuals. So I'm going to actually talk about um, visual um, image making and, and refer to um, a project um, that uh, I did with David Buckingham and Maria Pini called um, Camcorder Cultures, which was funded by the AHRC. So I'm going to share just one um, example of uh, a young person's interactions with digital technologies, which potentially positions him as a digital native in terms of his learning and social relations. So I'm going to focus quite closely here. Um, and I'm going to uh, raise questions about how framing his activities as those of a digital native limits our understanding of his interactions by ignoring some fundamental things that are occurring in relation to his learning and to his social relations. So part of the project involved interviewing a range of camcorder users from different what we call camcorder cultures, who we contacted through um, like video sharing sites, um, a survey that we conducted through clubs and schools and other organizations. And I'm going to focus on this one interviewee whom we interviewed partly because of his interest in making videos connected with his skateboarding culture. Um, but I'm going to occasionally branch out and talk about some of the other um, participants in the wider project. So Jacob is a 12-year-old boy who gave us a skateboarding DVD when we interviewed him. And the DVD had um, several carefully edited movies that he, um, and he made of his friends doing, doing skateboarding tricks or, or bailing, as the case may be. The videos were edited in iMovie, um, and each video is accompanied by a different style of music. The DVD is very professional looking. It has a kind of printed covering designed by Jacob. Um, it had his company name on it called Mimic Films. It had, uh, when you went into the DVD, it had a very stylized menu complete with um, the sound of a skateboard rolling on pavement. Um, and he told, it, he told me that he'd like to run a skateboarding company, as you know, a 12-year-old boy wouldn't, um, you know, selling skateboards and uh, skateboarding uh, DVDs. He's already sold a few of his skateboarding DVDs, um, thanks in part to a teacher who was so impressed with the videos that he had made that he shared this DVD with the entire year group. So it's very easy to celebrate the learning with which Jacob has engaged 
He's clearly a motivated learner, spending the hours that he needed to produce this DVD. His learning is embedded in his skateboarding culture, helping him to make sense of the DVDs that he watches and uh, connecting with his own experiences. He's reflecting on his consumption of skateboarding videos, critically analyzing other works as well as his own. So he evaluates and seeks to, seeks to improve his own work. These should sound familiar to teachers. We all want our students to do this. So he said that um, on this DVD, he was unimaginative. He always used slow motions for all the jumps, for example. Um, so he has a goal, for a learning goal for his next project, to experiment with uh, different rhythms, uh, music rhythms and tempos to match the, the kind of style of skateboarding. So as a learner in this context, he has a positive identity. He's taking part in constructionist learning, engaging in nonlinear forms of learning that are needed for this project, going on the web for answers, just-in-time answers um, to his questions. His learner is part of his identity as a budding professional. He's aiming to use more advanced software like Final Cut Pro for his next project. And finally, his learning is embedded in his social relations with his skateboarding friends. So he has an audience um, for his work at school. So you might say that Jacob is displaying the, the new modes and styles of learning associated with digital natives. Um, he's motivated, he has a positive identity as a learner connected with his future profession. He's learning through trial and error. He's not daunted by the prospect of learning more advanced technologies. If we look closer, however, we find that the picture is not so clear-cut. First, as with many of the young people we interviewed for our wider project, participatory media projects often involve access to economic, human, and social resources. So Jacob's family had several camcorders, and they were happy for him to, to take one of them skateboarding with him at the risk of getting damaged or stolen. He had a specialized um, fisheye lens that are, that's used in skateboarding videos to produce a, a particular aesthetic. He had a computer um, that had the latest video editing software on it and had enough spare memory and was fast enough to handle these videos. Many of the young people we interviewed as part of our project had face-to-face -face, um, social networks which included older, more experienced technology users. So iMovie um, was new to Jacob and his father, and they worked together to produce this DVD. Jacob's father is a graphic designer and an artist, and so he's familiar with digital technologies and design principles. And so although Jacob's father hadn't used iMovie before, as with any learner, his experience and knowledge contributed to his interaction with the technology. So Jacob's experience of using iMovie was partly scaffolded by his father, learning side by side, but having a range of resources to draw, to draw upon. And his learning is scaffolded by technologies. So software companies have economic imperatives to scaffold learning so as to encourage users to continue using their product. And you know this if you play video games. You start at one level and you progress and it gets harder and harder. iMovie works in the same way. iMovie users can start with very basic editing and then pr proceed to more advanced levels. In terms of conceptual frameworks related to filming and editing, it's not clear in our study of video makers that these skills are being learned simply through the act of video making. 
Interviews we did with parents and teachers indicates that there are many conceptual frameworks being taught directly to students in relation to video production. So one of our parents in our wider project explained that his son didn't understand that he didn't need to shoot things sequentially. Um, that editing actually involved mixing bits of film up and moving segments around. So we can't assume that children simply pick up these conceptual frameworks or even that they use technologies efficiently on their own. So we need to ask if young video makers like Jacob are learning new ways or is Jacob learning in more traditional ways, being scaffolded by technology as well as his father and um, his social resources connected with his skateboarding culture. So there are questions about how far Jacob exemplifies digital natives in terms of new um, styles and forms of learning. And the other question I want to ask um, about digital natives is um, how dependent they are on new technologies for communication and social interaction. So in our interviews with amateur camcorder users like Jacob and in interviews I did with um, several young men um, between ages 11 to 18 who put their amateur videos on YouTube, it became apparent that video making was um, as much a part of um, their masculine culture about having a laugh as a group of friends as it was to, to produce something to, communi to communicate with the wider world. In our study of um, everyday domestic uses of camcorders, we saw the camcorder acting as a kind of prop to play. Um, so they would pretend, they, they would play like it, it, it was a mirror. They would perform silly things for the camera and then watch it back. They'd prepare skits together, um, which they planned to film, but often didn't get filmed. They'd play at being, being a media producer, so um, providing football commentary as, they, commentary as they filmed themselves playing football with their siblings or their friends. So I'd argue here that digital technologies are part of the everyday play of young people rather than about new forms of interaction and communication. As with other digital interactions, playing video games, interacting on social networking sites, this play is part of the experience of being a young person confined to particular spaces and it's often a way of alleviating boredom and a way of sustaining existing friendships. In our study of more purposeful video makers who share their productions online, the productions were allowing groups of friends to demonstrate their friendship, and as almost all um, the participants who shared videos online were young men, um, they were displaying particular forms of masculinity. We also interviewed mobile phone video makers who, who display their productions online, and these included more young women. And here the digital interactions were about sharing particular moments with existing friends or family, or um, keeping a kind of personal video diary um, of these moments, rather than interacting with the wider world. So for a majority of the video makers who posted work online, video making was about play, friendship, and identity, rather than trying to find some sort of affinity space in the ether which would help them improve their video making. Part of the assumption about digital natives is that having a global audience online provides motivation to produce, assess, and improve work in communication with supportive online networks. Obviously, there are questions about how much YouTube, with its ubiquitous flaming, um, acts as a supportive space. And similarly, social networking sites and other kinds of online spaces, um, in these spaces we see very uneven power dynamics. But I also want to make the point that not all work needs an audience. 
Certainly some of the projects in our study were private and motivated by desires other than having an audience. So one participant said he keeps a video diary on his mobile phone and he watches that back privately. Another participant made several narrative videos based on uh, Jaws and Doctor Who, but didn't show these videos um, to anyone. And these videos involved numerous takes, careful selection um, and creation of props, detailed planning to create a correct sense of scale. So he had a little toy fish in his, in his fish tank at home, and then videos that he took at the London Aquarium, and he shot them very carefully to get the correct scale. Um, and although he had motivation to work through the production process, he had no desire to share these products. The motivation then came from the process rather than thinking that he had a global audience with which to communicate. So in conclusion, the picture I've tried to paint here through a close look at Jacob's practices and other more ordinary users of digital technologies is perhaps less exciting than a picture of um, Jacob as a digital native. I've argued that there are traditional forms of learning going on. He's being a boy. He's playing with his existing friends. However, although this might be a less exciting and less celebratory description of Jacob's practices, there are lots of important things going on. So we need to be aware that Jacob has access to resources that are scaffolding his learning. So looking at digital natives, um, we are bound to see digital divides. And we're also, we also need to see which concepts and skills um, need to be scaffolded and which might be better addressed in formal educational settings. And finally, we need to value and make room for the sometimes banal play that children do with digital technologies, which might be serving important social functions in their lives. I'm very proud, actually, to introduce the, the final speaker. Um, it's up. PhD student in the department and Silverstone Scholar for this year, Ranjana Das. And we've asked Ranjana to, in a sense, respond to, um, what, to what we've been hearing and perhaps weave a little bit of that into a description also of the exciting work that she's literally been doing in the last few weeks. So, Ranjana Das, thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Um, I promised final reflections, but I'll uh, do this a bit differently for uh, instead of a summary, I'll try to get in. Uh, six stories from Sophia and her friends uh, to respond to what has been said today. Uh, it comes from ongoing fieldwork, as Charlie said, and it continues tomorrow morning in Surrey. Um, from digital natives uh, to another contested term, digital literacy, and digital literacy remains strangely central to the idea of digital natives. Um, for in both, we have that uh, homogenous and therefore problematic category of uh, excited youth, and in both, we have that clear focus on digital technology. Um, in following Sophia and her friends on a single theme, which I pick up from Walter Silverstone, of deciphering the media, I wish to make three points. First, the dealing between technical expertise and critical awareness. Uh, critical awareness is something that we hear about so often in conversations in media literacy. The outpacing of children's intelligence and competences by technological change. And the complexity of digital literacies as practices at the intersect of children's competences, their contexts, and the design of what they use. Of course, um, like digital natives, uh, digital literacy carries with it a baggage of doubts about whether we are, you know, too many literacies, digital literacy after media literacy, and uh, 
Whereas uh, David Buckingham asked us, we are too wedded to technology in these kind of conversations. And an increasing recognition that computer skills of pressing buttons and changing font sizes and doing this and that, um, which may kind of raise person's profile on any possible e-skills evaluation test, uh, is not necessarily uh, the wider, more critical concept of literacy. But also the very idea of digital literacy must necessarily be linked to what uh, Sonia's second point asserted today, an idea of legibility. Uh, the way the media is structured, the way the media is designed, uh, what it permits, what it affords, what it encourages. Uh, and also that there are practices in a particular social historical context. So while much research speaks of uh, heterogeneity in the wider population, literacy is media literacy for adults, media literacy for children, older citizens, uh, youth, young people, children continue to inform our work as blanket terms, as um, David pointed out, often exoticized. Uh, so in this context, supported by Polis and the Roger Silverstone Fellowship Fund at the LSE, um, I've been talking to preteens and teens across a very wide range of schools in London, looking at difference and uh, diversity of uh, digital literacies in uh, youthful engagement, in particular with social networking sites, where I ask how do young people of different ages and from different contexts uh, engage differently with this specific genre, and what this can tell us not only about the literacies and their uh, expertise with a specific genre, but also about the genre itself. Um, I'm not going to discuss the broader project here, uh, but uh, three points now from my ongoing field work. So fittingly for the Silverstone panel on digital natives, uh, in these stories I pick up the first point from Lord Silverstone's emphasis that literacies are capacities to decipher, appreciate, criticize, and compose. My focus today is on the decipher. Uh, three very premium thoughts from ongoing field work, and I apologize for these are cynical and linking in many ways to the uh, points on ambiguity and the ambivalent voices uh, that Sonia talked about of children when they sit in front of the computer. First, I seem to stress that these children whose voices follow are all technically competent with that genre of social networking sites. Uh, following Chris, they are writers and drivers, yet they double and watch from the outside. They stumble, raising critical questions for both site design as well as for adults who are important in their lives. Second, I wish to stress that these are all technical experts again. Yet we shall see how technology develops more rapidly than the knowledge of it does. Third, I stress on the point of um, heterogeneity complexity. For any focus on critical awareness, any focus on deciphering the media, as the Western put it, must recognize the diversity of contexts in which these play out, the conventions of the media that they're aware of, and it is at that intersect of contexts and um, competences that we need to focus. Four stories on uh, ways in which four children decipher the ways in which online dangers play out on Facebook, the geography of which we all know at the back of their hands. 11-year-old Sophia comes from a working-class family where her parents are very proud of her, proud of her technical expertise. They make her aware of bad things that can happen to her, but they do not know what she does online. And Sophia tells me, there are lots of pearls online. Story. An old man pretended to be a 16-year-old girl and then met a girl who met him on Facebook, took her to a field and killed her. But I first add the people and then get to know them and then delete them. So I asked her, why do you add someone you don't know? They can get your information from your profile. And she says, you can't write bad things on Facebook, for they have a big computer. They will cancel your account if you're a root or a perv, and they will never let you go online again. Um, so from Sophia's trust on Facebook, Adam, who like uh, uh, Rebecca's story of Jacob, has multiple gadgets and is very proud of them, uh, displays them, shows me Facebook on his iPhone, 
and tells me that there are many ways to understand someone's fake profile. All he needs to do is to check if the photos are professional. And what are professional photos? Like on Google Images, go and type professional photos and you will see. If I see them posing against the sun or displaying a lot of glossy skin, I know they're fake. Alice attends an expensive um, private school and has all imaginable gadgets that one could possibly wish for at 13. Adds people to the list automatically. She clicks and adds people. For it is considered very uncool in her circle to have less than 300 friends. And then, once a man wrote to me saying, I know you live in West London, and I chatted to him till it got bad, I got scared. Then I figured I should have known. How? Well, his name was Edward Phillips. That sounded fake, perhaps, but how did I know? <laughs> Finally, Alison, a quiet 14 year old girl from a Jamaican family, very violent with her classmates, clearly impressed with um, something that she's encountered online, asks me the first question in the interview. What do you think of young people going on Facebook? You're researching it, tell me. I think it's impressive. You tell me? It's disgusting. The disgusting people, sick people on there, I don't write a word, I don't let anyone tag me. It's so disgusting, just disgusting. For literacy scholars, if critical awareness means evaluation and assessment in place of faith and assumption, are these uncritical things? All four identify a problem, decipher the problem, all four have specific strategies to be critical in their evaluation, and all four fail in many ways. The first places all have trust in the name of Facebook and the big computer. One decides to switch off. One decides on a problematic strategy of filtering photo styles that does not work, and another has been stopped repeatedly. As my first point stressed, despite their best attempts to be critically aware, they stumble. Despite their expertise with all things one could cluster together as e-skills, and of course, notwithstanding the potentially high scores on any imaginable e-skills assessment scale, they encounter naughty conventions which punctuate their engagement with the digital everyday life. So a question there perhaps for both media design and media education. Um, two more interesting stories. Uh, this time on my second point of how technological advancement outpaces um, literacy. Delia at 13 knows the precise settings of the privacy button, unlike many of her peers. She can group her friends into countless categories and has spent one year <coughs> figuring out how to get around Facebook norms and conventions. So in one of her conversations with her friends on a wall, they, had, they shared a joke about plastic surgery and then an advert on the right, which offers plastic surgery to her at a discounted rate. And she tells him, how does Facebook know if I need plastic surgery? I'm really offended at seeing this ad. She cannot possibly imagine that her profile information, her conversation, her private conversation with her friend, has fed into the site itself to tailor make adverts for her. And there are many more instances. Mustafa, a self-confessed game site, steadily works his way over the past year around the commercial nature of Facebook. And he tells me that he deletes adverts by clicking on the cross button without even seeing what they are for. So he defeats Facebook and its commercial purposes. This time, however, when he clicks on the cross button on the right on an advert, it turns out to be a report button. So he's excited and he disrupts his work and he reports the advert. The advert disappears and then another one drops up. He reports that, another drops up. After five deletions, he realizes that the delete button is useless. It merely replaces that word. He masters the genre, he learns its countless norms and conventions, and then in response is deceived. His fear, the 13-year-old you, is an independent voice school, privileged in many ways, in growing up with high tech, tells me from the very outset that things are weird on Facebook and creepy. To stress my second point, these are all technical experts. Yet we see how technology develops more rapidly than uh, their knowledge of it does. 
In conclusion, my real focus gets these together on the point of heterogeneity and diversity. Any focus on research on digital literacy of digital natives, any focus on their critical awareness, on their evaluation and assessment in place of faith and assumption, must recognize the diversity of contexts in which they use the media, the conventions that they learn, and then which they discover are useless. And it is at that intersect that um, our focus must lie. In this room today, nobody will disagree that literacies are far from technical skills, but they are located in the context of everyday life. That they are restrained and shaped as Mustafa, Odilia, Lewis, and Counter, sadly, by Alexander Livingstone in the new book, aptly terms the conditions of legibility. Yet we see how experts, such as Sophia or Anderson, understand the tasks at hand and stumble. So it is in emphasizing these three claims the importance of the conditions of legibility, the huge difference between technical natives and critical participants, and the difference that characterizes this easy and homogeneous category for young people that the narrative of natives can be uh, legislatively questioned and uh, perhaps Charlie are questioning can be opened up for questions and critiques now. Thank you. Thanks very much, Anjana. Um, we've, we've got a good 20 minutes. I should say as well that thanks to um, the generosity of Ofcom, who have been supporting this event, we've got a reception afterwards, which is on the eighth floor in this building. So although we haven't got much time for formal exchange now, um, please come along and have a drink on the eighth floor of this building afterwards, and you'll be able to perhaps continue. Yeah, indeed. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take um, two or three questions to start with, um, sort of lump them together a bit, and then let the panel respond um, so that you guys get a chance to um, talk as well. So if you've got pens to take notes, should we fire open them up? Hi, thanks. Um, I'm interested in the idea of serendipity. Um, it's sometimes said that when people watch television, they come across things that they get interested in that they wouldn't otherwise watch, so that broadens their horizons. And there's sometimes a contrast made with the internet that people simply indulge in the things they're already interested in, so if they're mad about sport, they watch lots of sport. Do you, is that your observation? Uh, I'd like to ask really Chris and David and Sonia from observing young people, is there serendipity on the internet? Let's take that one actually because it's quite a big subject, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess another way that, that people have thought about that is in terms of a, a pull medium and a push medium. Yeah, so the internet does involve you going and, and, and finding stuff. And, and then, I mean, I, I have looked at that in the context of some work we've been doing around um, the internet and civic participation. So how are young people getting you know, civic, political information online? And one of the dangers that people have, have talked about in that context is that what you do, because it's a, it's a pull medium, you go out and you find the stuff that coincides with your point of view. I mean, another aspect of that is that you can also go out and find stuff that is directly opposite to your point of view and go on other people's websites and annoy them. Um, and that certainly happens. But the danger is a kind of um, sort of political balkanisation that people get, get used to talking to people that they already know who share their point of view, but they don't get the experience of dialogue um, across 
different points of view. Um, and the other thing also, looking at that from the point of view of the, the civic, I mean, we've been looking at the civic organisations that are trying to engage young people. And again, they have a problem because of, of the internet in that respect. They're wanting to engage young people who are not engaged. But actually the internet, although they look to the internet as being a fantastic new medium for the digital generation to do that, actually it's, a, it's really not a very good medium for doing that as compared with television, which reaches a, a, a larger much less differentiated audience and your chances of, of finding young people who don't know about your pet concern and, and, and engaging them are actually higher with an older medium than with a, a newer medium. Yeah? Um, that's a really interesting question. I, mean, I, 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 I try and think of the people we talk to and I think the serendipity is more likely quite often to go away from the internet and the internet might sometimes be where they followed up. So TV or or reading or other interests, they're not don't seem to be fantastically good at, at just seeking out or coming across new experiences. Except, I suppose, something like YouTube probably is pretty, pretty extensively <laughs> giving them those unexpected encounters, but not necessarily going far with them. So, I don't think there is a tremendous amount of you know, them reaching out and, and giving opening themselves up to opportunities of, of new, new knowledge or new experiences like that. No. Can I, can I disagree then? Um, um, just a, a sort of a, a first point. I think that argument about television wasn't quite um, an argument about serendipity, but it was more an argument that um, an arranged schedule for the nation would make sure that everyone kind of got something of what they should get. I mean, there was something normative about that expectation of, you know, you, you would have to watch it because there were only four channels and you would definitely have to watch a documentary at certain times. There was, a, there was something about what one ought to get there. Um, but I would um, ask about the way, the, 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 the social media, the way in which if you have, um, if you sustain a wide network and what are they doing all the time they are, have you seen this, have you gone there, let me send you a bit of this, here's a bit of text, try this, what about that? I think there is a huge amount of kind of dipping in and dipping out. Um, but I would say that that's um, when I'm in a different kind of conference, precisely what we worry about. It's called surfing uh, aimlessly or surfing around as if you don't know what the purpose is and they're meant to be purposive. Um, it's expanded if you've got lots of contacts and lots of friends, preferably people who don't share exactly your background that you don't know well, so they are the ones who are potentially the friends of friends and maybe even the strangers and the weirdos. So. Um, it's difficult for, to see how you know, we can kind of feel positive about um, a serendipitous, is that an adjective? A serendipitous way of sharing and exchanging ideas and suggestions because that is precisely to sort of go beyond your contained and safe world. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Just because Mark said it was only for certain people. <laughs> right, if you take some more. Um, there's the gentleman there, and then do you want to give it to the lady behind as well, please? In the black. In the um, I'd just like to come back to uh, the question posed by Professor Livingston. Um, when I saw that topic, I thought you were going to talk about something completely different. Um, because in the American educational system, there's been great concern about what they call media literacy. Uh, it's about how do people know whether what they read on uh, Wikipedia is valid or not? Uh, how can they form an assessment about all sorts of things? And uh, that concern has led 
to there being a whole subject which is uh, not exactly taught in American colleges, which is being led by the college librarians. Because they see their job as providing digital media, DVDs, whatever, and providing access to things like Wikipedia as part of the whole pool of learning resources within, within the college. And they believe that they, have, they need to teach that kind of media literacy, which going back 60 years was what I was taught in English classes when we did an analysis of all the contracts in newspaper advertisements. Yeah. And I, I wonder, um, where are we going with that in the UK? Because as I understand it, schools are shutting down the libraries. Mm. That's such a big area as well, media literacy. A lot of what you would all seem to be saying was sort of by questioning um, the sort of educational value almost, or learning processes that we assume is in this. Where does that leave actual learning about the processes? Where does it leave media literacy? Is it something you know, mm. akin to old-fashioned education? Well, I, I don't know that we were... Um, disagreeing or that I was saying something different from you. So I'll try and uh, uh, restate what I was saying, I, I, I think. Anyway, um, what I was trying to um, put my finger on was the way in which the um, design of all kinds of um, uh, rep representations of knowledge, whether they're for educational benefit or, in fact, any kind of representation, um, are not necessarily or not, not sufficiently often framed and um, uh, organized in such a way that one can make an assessment of what is useful, what is constructive, what is valid, what is authoritative. Um, and I was trying to point to um, some kind of responsibility on those that provide these resources or host these sites that would um, provide those indicators. Otherwise, and what I'm particularly worried about, is that when um, let's say um, a teenager takes something off Wikipedia and says this is the truth, I found it on the internet the finger is pointed at the young person as somehow incompetent or illiterate rather than pointed at those who provided these resources without feeling it necessary to um, explain in any way how that might be evaluated so I'm sort of, I wasn't I mean, I, I could say what might be done in schools, and I do think, actually, it's, um, this would be a task for uh, teachers and educators, and there are more qualified um, professors of education on this uh, uh, up here than I, but um, what I was really trying to move away from was the sense that if we see young people um, falling for, being taken in by, not making, uh, not understanding distinctions in the kind of resources they're using, we should not be pointing the finger at them and saying they have in some way failed, but, and nor should we be celebrating their competence without looking sufficiently closely at how they're using those resources, but somehow in between we need to find a more um, informed and um, well-organised structure of, if you like, labelling and clarifying what kind of resources there are for them, particularly in an educational setting. Okay. Let's take another question. Sorry. You've got the mic. Well, this, uh, is this working? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, my name is Mary Abdo. I work at the Young Foundation on a project on young people and leadership, and we are currently uh, writing a publication to do with uh, young people, leadership, and information and communication technologies. 
And one of the questions that we're examining is uh, how schools can teach these things better. Uh, what are schools doing wrong? How can they teach them better? What are effective practices in the class classroom? And I'm, I've got a room full of experts, and I wanted to pose the question. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna, if I can, I'm going to take another question just so we get a couple more in. Over there. And then gen gentleman at the back. <laughs> she needs one. And there's the guy at the back. Can you just take the microphone up? Hello. Thank you for a very interesting uh, uh, papers. Um, David Buckingham, you said that there are no simple hierarchies of taste between uh, students and teachers. And I'm just wondering more broadly, not just to your um, work, but are there other hierarchies, either of use or of capital, or are they just traditional socioeconomical hierarchies, or do you see other hierarchies emerging um, through your, your research? Okay, that's Thank good. Let's take the third one. Um, yeah, um, something you touched on in the last paper um, was the reaction to targeted advertising on Facebook, and I just wanted to ask the panel whether the young people that they'd met in their experience were aware of being specifically targeted online by brands rather than individuals per se. I'm not talking about the perps, um, or at least <laughs> not in the classic sense. And if so, what their reaction was to that, whether of cynicism or indifference. That's interesting. Okay, do you want to start with the last one, actually, Ranjan? Um, your question about whether they were aware, my answer is no. A couple were, uh, especially if they were prodded or guided or asked repeatedly, why do you think you are getting an advert for buying shoes for rugby when you're clearly a rugby fan and your profile says that and your quotes say that and your... Uh, and then the comment usually is, it's creepy, it's weird, but it's useful. So when asked why it is useful, <laughs> Uh, the answers are, I think there are two answers. First is that interesting adverts, interesting things to see. And the second is that, um, which is interesting because they say that Facebook, they, they is Facebook, I think, they kind of extend the same logic to also suggest friends for you from people you may know. And they ask you things like how to make Facebook better for them. And they give you options of liking an ad. Uh, and that is useful, apparently. Uh, but uh, largely my answer is no. They do not recognize that this is targeted advertising. Okay. David, do you mind? Um, I, I kind of wanted to answer the, the questions around education first, although I will, I will answer that one as well. Because, I, I mean, I think one of the problems from an educational point of view, one of the problems with the digital natives argument is the assumption that young people know it all already. You know, they somehow automatically know everything that they need to know. And also that the technology in and of itself will teach them everything they need to know. Yes? And I, I think, you know, that's not true either on, on the level of technological literacy, if you like. I mean, in terms of are they able to, um, to navigate their way around the internet or whatever. But neither is it true on the level of what we might call critical literacy. So how far are they aware of things like you know, marketing online or who's putting this information up and why are they putting it up and how do we evaluate it and so on. Now, and that's, that's where I would say there needs to be some connection between the thinking about media literacy and digital literacy. I think one of the, the problems in a way is that these things, these things are all getting very blurred. When you look at the discussion around digital literacy, very often it tends to be equated with e-skills, a, a rather reductive form of technological <coughs> skill. You look at the, um, the digital literacy driving test, as it's called, in, in, in Europe. 
you know, and it, it's a very it's a very limited form of of technology. It's about technological skill and basic information retrieval. Yes. Um, in the UK, we have a very long history of people doing media education, largely in the context of English teaching, but also in the context of media studies as a, as a specialist subject. And that, that has a long history. It's existed for a long time, a lot longer, I would say, than it has in the US. And I would also think, I would also say that it, we've moved away from the perspective that is still around in the US, which is a very protectionist one, which is all about, you know, how do we save young people from drugs, alcohol, obesity, you name it, oh, well, we'll teach them to be critical of the media. And I think we've moved away from that perspective, which is very much still around in the UK. But I think at the moment, we're, there's a risk of a blurring going on here. When I look at, for example, um, the Rose Review, which I mentioned, which is a recent review of primary education, um, it talks a lot about um, ICT, um, and it took, you know, there's a whole argument about how do we engage with children's experiences outside the classroom. Um, it does not mention television once, despite the fact that children spend more time watching television than they spend online or, or with, with digital media. Um, if you go to Digital Britain, another recent policy thing coming from somewhere else, from, from DCMS, there's this argument that, well, you know, this media literacy thing, it's much too confusing and vague. What we need is e-participation. So there's a sense I have that, that where there was a moment where everybody was talking about media literacy as something both about critical understanding and also about creative engagement with these media. We're beginning to slip back now to a, a point where people are talking about this in a rather reductive way, that, that what we need to do is just basically make sure that everybody can use technology, that everybody's online and, and doing it. And, and actually the big, the big questions, the critical questions about how, what they're doing and how they're evaluating what they're doing um, what they encounter online, that stuff seems to be disappearing from view. So I think I have a worry about that. Um, just sorry, and just to answer the question about about some, yeah, I mean, what I was trying to get to there was I. What what we've been looking at is this notion of there being a, a kind of gap between teachers and students, and traditionally, you know, when you look at the whole <coughs> literature in the sociology of education. Um, a lot of that is about um, a gap in terms of social class, and it's a gap between, if you like, teachers' culture and, and students' culture. And there's often an assumption that you know teachers are identified with high culture, and, and kids are in live in the world of popular culture. I think what I sense is that that argument about a kind of generation gap is being recast now as an argument about technology. So the kids are all up with the technology and the teachers are the dinosaurs and they, they have no idea. What I'm trying to question and what is coming through from the, the survey stuff that we've done is actually that neither of those characterizations of, of that gap, that generation gap, actually really apply. When you, when you look at you know, what at least these teachers and these kids say they're doing with their, with their time in terms of their use of media, actually it's, mu it's much more complicated and it is by no means the case either that you know, teachers know nothing about technology and kids know everything or alternatively that you know, teachers are all kind of reading War and Peace and you know, watching, watching you know, documentaries on BBC Two or whatever and kids are all watching The X Factor. You know, actually that, that idea of there being this kind of polarisation between teachers and students cultural worlds, actually when you, when you start to look at it, does not apply. Although interestingly, 
nevertheless, teachers will say that, and some kids will say that. <laughs> so I think that's about them constructing their own position as members of a generation. So teachers will say, oh, I don't really know anything about this technology. But actually they do, and they're using technology quite a lot. So I think this discourse about generational difference does enter into how people tell stories about themselves. But the reality is much more mixed and much more uneven and, and complicated. Mm. Can you get a response from Becky and Chris, in a sense? But feel free to go wide as well. Because we're running out of time. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to respond to the kind of question of what to teach uh, uh, young people. And I think also a kind of message to schools about the research I have been doing for about the past 10 years on um, young people uh, on the internet. So it started with chat rooms and has gone all the way through um, current social networking sites. And one of our, the findings that has been kind of consistent over there, the, the years is the effects of repressive discourses on, on young people. So when schools say, um, you know, don't give out your personal details, they all know that rule. The government, you know, Think You Know campaign is very successful at getting the message that children should not give out their personal details online. But when we start talking to young people about these things um, in, in, in interview situations, we'll have these round-the-table um, story-sharing times of um, perverts and pedophiles, as we saw in, in, in Wanyana's data. And then eventually, after maybe 30 minutes, someone will say, um, actually, I don't know what a pedophile is. What is one anyway? You know, and I've also found this with um, uh, asking kids you know, the classic question, do you know who owns Facebook or do you know who owns Bebo in this case? Um, of interviews I did recently. And again, they kind of come to the realization through the context of interviews um, that it is a money-making machine, you know, so a kind of ask, ask <coughs> probing questions. Um, but, but just kind of saying, actually, you know, it close the ads, don't look at this, don't look at this, it's, um, it's not helping our students at all. So I think um, talking to students is, and, and, and finding out um, what, you know, what questions do come up as you talk to students is really um, one of the most productive ways to go forward. Uh, I, I'm, I don't think I've got anything to add sort of answers to the questions coming, just to sort of, I think, pull together what I, I, everything I've heard this evening uh, has kind of confirmed my feeling that we'd be very foolish to talk about there being a particular kind of uh, digital native essence. Uh, I, I, I'm really can't buy that and I don't think many people can though it, it still charges on um, uh, but I do think that there are things that uh, young people are doing uh, as a group with these resources that are, are causing consternation and, and could be causing a lot of actually be a much better cause for sort of cooperation and understanding between both their teachers and their parents a lot of parents are very anxious uh, and, and, and create tensions for the young people. And, and I don't think, uh, I absolutely agree that teachers have got this uncritical view of them as digital natives. What they need to have, I think, is much more understanding of the range of things that they are trying to do and, and helping them to fill in the gaps. Uh, and, and that's where I think this sort of effort is needed. Excellent. Do you want to say Yeah, okay. Listen, I think we're going to wrap it there, partly because we have to wrap it there. Uh, it's 8 o'clock, but as I said, um, feel free to come to the 8th floor for a glass of wine. You get some stunning views of London as well. Um, but thank you very much for you for all coming, for those great questions.
And thank you very much to the panel for what I thought was a very rich and very, very detailed exploration of that whole set of issues. So thank you very much to all of you. That was great.